Hello, I'm Kate Chabot and welcome to an extra edition of SITREP where we learn what it's like to be an army bomb disposal operator diffusing a device in the midst of combat and what you can do with those skills outside the armed forces. Kim Hughes was awarded the George Cross for his bravery in Afghanistan, where he dealt with well over 100 devices, saving many lives. He told this week's SITREP, actually diffusing bombs is quite boring to watch. Nothing like the movies show us. And since leaving the army, he's done some work on those movies. But there's more to his story that we didn't have time for in the regular programme, including why he didn't wear blast-proof suits in Afghanistan and what the Queen had to say to him as she presented his medal. We also talk more about how he's become a writer, starting with his memoir, Painting the Sands. So it was, funnily enough, we were kind of, when we were looking at the book, we were kind of banding around um, funky titles and what would be, you know, catching titles. And I actually just was looking at pictures of what I was doing in Afghanistan. And the one picture was me lay on my belt buckle with a paintbrush in my hand. And that's exactly what we do when we uncover devices in that kind of environment. We utilize a paintbrush. And that's essentially where it came from. Wow. It's as simple as that. <laughs> yeah. So you see this is almost certainly a homemade bomb, an IED. How do you go about making it safe exactly? Every bomb is different, um, whether it is a victim-operated device, which is a device designed to be operated by someone interacting with it, or a time device, which is a device which is designed to initiate at predetermined time. It really depends on what you're dealing with at, at that moment in time. In, in Afghanistan, uh, predominantly victim-operated devices to target um, ground troops. Um, and essentially, we'd be called out to a device that has been found. Um, so it was my job to kind of look around the area, look at the device itself, utilize the paintbrush, metal detectors, and, and an array of tools that I had in my, my kits, uh, and essentially render that device safe. And what goes through your mind when you're doing it? Um, you know what, it's, it's funny, because it's not like you see in the movies where um, you know, there's sweat pouring. Oh, obviously there is sweat because you're in, you're certainly in Afghanistan, it's quite warm, but you know, there's your heart rate's not going crazy and you're not shaking and none of that kind of stuff. You're just thinking about the job in, in hand and you're thinking about, you know, the next step. Once you've achieved what you're doing on target, then what is your next step? What do you then have to do? But in the back of your mind, you've also got certainly in a high tempo environment, the, the wider mission you need to think about. So it's, it's very fast moving, very flowing environment. Yes, the wider mission. Uh, what happens then if a firefight breaks out nearby? Instinct must say to you, jump to safety. But then there's the risk of other IEDs that could, could be set off by you. Yeah, absolutely. And that's where you've got to have trust in your team and the, and the, the guys and girls around you. You know, there were situations when I was on the ground and situations where my colleagues were on the ground where essentially all hell broke loose around them. And you're there to do your job. You are you are a small cog in the big wheel of that that mission. So, you, if you don't crack on and do what you're doing, then nothing else will be able to progress. And and sometimes, you know, you are the furthest man forward or furthest girl forward, you know, because the infantry have essentially withdrawn from the area and you're walking forward to the device. And if if it does. Um, kick off around you you've essentially you've just got to get into as low down position as you can and crack on doing what you're doing and have have trust um, in the people around you to solve that problem each device you get is different do you always feel confident you can actually diffuse them um, yeah, I mean, we're trained in such a way to be able to look at a situation look at a device and 
and essentially think outside of the box. The actual bomb disposal part, the physical doing of, of bomb disposal is relatively easy. And I, I say this a lot to people, it's not actually that difficult at all. The, the difficulty comes in understanding the bigger picture, understanding the threat assessment, understanding why the device is there in the first place. And if you don't get that, you'll probably get one device under your belt and then that'll be it. Um, and it'll be game over for you because you don't understand the bigger picture. When you say understand the bigger picture, what are you trying to assess then? So you're looking at everything from why the device is in the ground. Um, you're looking at the atmospherics. Why aren't the local nationals around? Why is everything all of a sudden quiet when this, for example, bazaar is really busy? You know, what are the lines of sight like into the area? What have friendly forces done in this area to to have that device in the ground? Have they walked down this road today? Did they walk down there yesterday in the previous week? Have they set patterns, which essentially they've set themselves up for? Um, and it's understanding that and asking all of those questions, detailed question technique leads on to really good threat assessment and understanding. A bomb disposal operator should absolutely know what is down the road before he or she actually gets down there. Even if they're just told there's a disturbance in the ground, they should through threat assessment and detailed questioning before they actually physically get there, know exactly what's in the ground and why it's there. You say that um, diffusing a bomb is actually quite straightforward. What do you actually do? What is the process? I mean, I, I, there's different various types, as I've said, about devices, but essentially the device is broken down into, into component parts. You have to have the explosive content, you, which is the main charge. You have to have the detonator, and essentially that gives the explosive that energetic kick to go bang. Uh, you then have to have a power source, otherwise nothing's going to work. Um, if we're talking about an electrical initiated device, which predominantly um, they were when we were operating in Afghanistan, and then some form of switch. Now, the best way to do it is to, to remove that power source. To If you take the power away, nothing's going to happen. So we're looking for that power source or we're looking for the circuit and we're looking to break that circuit. Have you ever sort of been there and thought, I'm going to have to abandon this, I can't do it, and had to walk away? Not really. I mean, the only the only time I've ever had to kind of come away from a device is when the, the situation, uh, the bigger picture has changed, whether that is, you know, the enemy will move into the area. Uh, you know, I talk about it certainly in, in my book, I had to withdraw from an area because a Danish main battle tank wanted to to, to shoot around over the top of my head into a compound because there was a lot of enemy activity. And obviously they weren't going to do that whilst I was laying on the ground in front of them. So I had to withdraw from that. Um, but it's very frustrating to a bomb disposal operator if he or she has been told, right, stop what you're doing. We need to now leave because you're almost, it's almost like half a job's been done. Um, so mm. you kind of want to get the job done. And then, you know, that kind of situation, if time allows for it, then if you're unable to remove that device from the ground and render it safe, then what we would do is call a blow in place. So we place an explosive charge next to the device and we would control, do a controlled explosion of that device. And then subsequently it would be destroyed rather than rendered safe and recovered. And how do you actually learn to defuse a bomb? Because it's not like you can do it by trial and error, is it, on the real thing? No. no. Um, so we learn at our bomb disposal school, um, uh, which is, is based um, in Oxfordshire and Warwickshire. It's kind of split uh, in the UK. Um, and, and essentially, you, you go there and you learn the tricks of the trade and you, you, you you learn everything there is to know about improvised explosive devices, how to render certain devices safe. Um, but there is no um, kind of guide or, or rule book of this is how you render safe this particular device, this is how you render safe that. And that's why we're trained to such a level to be able to look at a situation, look at a device which might be novel, it might be new, something we've never seen before, and mm. understand 
the, the general principles of how that device works and then subsequently come up with a plan to render it safe. And I suppose wherever you're working, the situation is going to be different. The physical demands must be huge, like in Afghanistan, immense heat, or you could have an immense cold, depending on where you are, what time of year it is. Uh, the blast protection suit that can weigh, what, 20 or 30 kilograms? I mean, that physical side of it must be very hard when you're doing a very delicate job. I mean, absolutely. Dexterity is key in everything that we do, certainly with bombs. You need to be able to move, you need to be able to use your hands effectively. Um, you know, back in the day of Afghanistan, we didn't have bomb disposal suits. Um, it essentially was it was tactically unsound. You couldn't move it fast enough. It wasn't very dynamic. The heat alone was just insane. The bomb disposal suit the guys and girls use at the moment is approximately 50 kilos in weight. Um, and if you're doing light scale operations where you are basically flying out to an area in a helicopter with your team, you don't have the ability to carry, you know, your life support equipment, your body armor, your helmet, everything you need to survive on the ground and the 50 kilogram bomb disposal suit. Um, mm. So in, in a high risk environment, we just didn't use it. Um, and, and that was just the way it was. <laughs> You received the George Cross in 2009 from Her Majesty the Queen. What was that like? You know, it was insane. Um, it was such a surreal moment. Um, and, and Her Majesty is just so clued up. Um, I remember, um, you know, walking towards her and, you know, you bow and she reaches out and shake her hand. And, you know, she just like a normal person, she has asked loads of questions. She knew so much about me already. She's well informed. Um, and it, she, she is very good at making you feel at ease. Um, we, we had a, a very brief chat. It was, it was a really, really surreal, but really, um, proud moment. Um, and then, yeah, that, that was me. I was just over the moon. Mm. What, what did you say to her? Yeah, we had a chat. She, it was during that period of time, um, in Afghanistan, sorry, Afghanistan, where, um, you know, we were getting hit hard. There wasn't very many bomb disposal operators. So she, as I said, she's very clued up and she, she, you know, she said, I understand there's not very many of you guys and girls out there, you know, how's it going? What's it like on the ground? Um, she asked me how my son was, which was just crazy because I didn't realize that she knew I, I had a son, um, uh -huh. you know, and just all of this, this stuff. And it was kind of, it's one of those moments which is a real blur and you only kind of get snippets of that information come back <laughs> to you, you know, days and weeks later. Um, but it was, you know, she was, she was amazing uh, and it was such a great day. Bomb disposal is a very specialist set of skills. What do you do now, now that you've left the army? So I'm very fortunate that I still kind of have my hand in um, this kind of environment. You know, I'm a technical consultant for the Foreign Office. Um, so I do a lot of business for, for that office and I do a lot of travel on their behalf. I also am my own consultant and through my own company. So I do a lot of um, training, uh, a lot of corporate work. Um, certainly, you know, the training bit surrounds the bomb disposal and capability development and, and, tr and you know, that kind of thing. But in the mm. corporate environment, it's about, you know, leadership, team building, um, man management, et cetera, et cetera. So um, it's, it's quite, it's been really amazing since I left the army, but I haven't stopped. You'd think given that your training that um, you are very capable of being focused when under pressure, does that translate into all areas of life? You know, it does because you, you learn, it's a bit crazy. You learn that, you know, everything is relative in everything that we do. Um, stressful situations that others might find, you know, too much to deal with. I kind of look at it differently. 
um, and I'd be able just to just to get on with it because I, I always reflect and think it's not as bad as some of the things I've been in and not as bad as some of the things I've done previously. So, and this isn't going to kill me. So let's just get on with it. Um, and it, it, it's very easy to look at life like that. Um, mm. And it, I, find, I find it works for me. Does that mean you don't get stressed? Not really, no. <laughs> which is which is a strange so thing. lucky. <laughs> um, you you write as well, don't you? Yeah, I'm. I was very fortunate um, that following my autobiography, my um, publishers approached me and asked if I would um, kind of dip my foot into into fiction, and um, and subsequently following that, I've uh, written two novels, um, which uh, which are doing really really well. Painting the signs is a memoir, and as you say, you've written two two novels now. What was it like branching out into fiction? It's very different, um, and it's a, a different way of writing. And you know, writing an autobiography is extremely personal. Um, it gives you time to reflect, and you know, um, you know, working on painting the sands took about a year and a half, I think. And fiction mm -hmm. is a lot a lot quicker. You know, and I've learned that. You know, if you're writing nonfiction, for example, you're trying to describe a room you're in, you know, you talk about the intricacies of that room, the, the smell, the touch, the way it feels, the heat. Whereas fiction, you're not talking about the room, you're talking about moving through the room and getting to the other side. It's a lot quicker. And I had to kind of get my head around that. And what did you write about? Um, so, it, it kind of, funnily enough, uh, uh, it's based around a UK bomb disposal guy um, who, who goes and does some crazy stuff, works a lot with the um, security services. Um, there's various characters that get thrown into the mix. Um, and essentially he's in the army um, and, and goes out and, and does some stuff with the army, but branches out into the civilian sector and works very closely with the secret, not the secret service, the, the security services, MI5, MI6, um, and off he goes and does stuff. Mm. When you see things um, like the Hurt Locker, um, it certainly makes an impact on the public and, and gives them a very definite impression about what your job is, was like. Um, how do you respond to people? I mean, did you watch the film? Or how do you respond when people come up to you and it's all in awe, I presume, about what you used to do? I mean, the, the, the Hurt Locker, um, when it comes down to the, the intricate detail of bomb disposal, it's horrendous. <laughs> it's, not like, it's, not how we, it's not how we do business at all. Um, but... Um, work, doing some of the, the stuff I've done since, well, leaving, being in the army and leaving the army and doing some stuff on TV, movie sets and, and, and whatnot, it's the entertainment factor. It has to be because bomb disposal is boring. Uh, I'm, not, I'm not even joking. <laughs> to watch bomb disposal, it's quite a laborious, boring thing to look at. You know, there is, there is excitement in it. When you do it, it's exciting. But to stand at the back and watch it, it's like watching paint dry. Um, mm. You know, it's it, sometimes in, in a high tempo environment, yes, it can be dynamic. Yes, it's crazy. It can be, you know, there's adrenaline, et cetera, et cetera. But if you're doing bomb disposal, for example, in the UK mainland, there's certain procedures that need to be in place before you can physically go and do stuff. And a lot of the stuff is done by a robot. So the Hurt Locker, for example, it, it takes elements of bomb disposal in a high risk, high tempo environment and just pumps it up a lot and puts it into a movie and it has you have to do that it's certainly when it comes to tv movie etc you have to because otherwise it's just it's just relentlessly boring um so from an entertainment perspective yeah it's great but you know for anyone that is a subject matter expert in whatever and they see a movie about it you can guarantee they're screaming at the tv half the time so you've been on movie sets yourself what do you do exactly 
Um, so I've I've advised on a, a couple of things in my subject matter um, previously, but I've kind of stopped it there because there is potential in in the near future that I'm gonna I'm gonna branch out in into TV and do kind of my own thing. It's really interesting because you said that um, you have to accept that when you're making uh, entertainment, that there has to be a certain level of kind of creative license when you're showing the work of bomb disposal experts. Do you feel that, uh, can you accept uh, letting a bit of that in, in the future? <laughs> yeah, no, you, you, you have to. Um, and you know, there's only, there's only so much of a technical advisor that a, a director will take before he then says, get it, but we're doing this anyway. Um, and you've kind of got to just agree with it and say, okay, that, that's cool. But, um, you know, to, to be uh, in a position where you are being approached to, to work and do stuff on, on screen, you know, it's such, such a, an outstanding thing to be asked and, and, and to these guys to work with, you've kind of got to accept that sort of creativeness. Um, just on the subject uh, of Afghanistan, you did three tours and many veterans have spoken about how hard it was to see the Taliban return to power in Afghanistan. How's that been for you? Um, it's been frustrating. Um, and I've been asked an awful lot about how that's made me feel. Um, but I kind of look at it in, in two lights. You know, I said at the back of my um, autobiography that you know the Taliban had moved back into Lashkar and areas of Sangin, um, and I also said in there that, you know the, the Taliban were quoted to say you know you have the watches but we have the time, and mm. and they've proven that here they've proven that in this in this instance where they've just waited and waited and waited until the extraction of coalition forces, um, and they've just moved back into the area. But when I talk to people about it, uh, you know it's not I don't concentrate on the doom and gloom of you know what what life is going to look like I, I concentrate on we were over there and we did a mission we were over there and we made life better for the local population during the period of time that we were there um yes we took a lot of hits and yes we lost um you know great girls and guys however we still achieved what we wanted to achieve out there um and that's the way i kind of look at it you know was was the juice worth the squeeze you know when you lose friends you think no it wasn't but if you look at the bigger picture we helped so many people out there kim hughes really great to speak to you thank you for your time and good luck with the future thanks very much news discussions and analysis this is sit